Justice Warriors, last July, in the summer of 2022, Tracy and I released our first podcast on the wrongful conviction of Gary Sutton. At that time, I had published a petition asking for the public's support in our request to the governor to exonerate Sutton for the 30-year-old conviction that has left him hopelessly awaiting execution, all while begging to be heard that he is innocent. Now, eight months later, I would like to bring some updates to you and present an alternate, more plausible theory of what had happened those fateful days in February of 1992. What would you think if I told you that there was somebody, a man, who had a motive and the opportunity to commit the crimes that Sutton and his co-defendant, James Dillinger, were convicted of, but that law enforcement, for whatever reason, were so laser-focused on Sutton and Dillinger that they failed to investigate other possible suspects. It happens more often than one would like to think. And in this case, it cost Sutton and Dillinger their lives. Maybe you've seen the Bravo documentary titled Smoky Mountain Murders, Murdered by Morning, which paints the picture that Sutton and his uncle, co-defendant James Dillinger, had gone out drinking at Howie's Hideaway in Sevier County with victim Tommy Griffin, who was a friend of theirs at the time. At the bar, they got into a bar fight with two unidentified men known as Chief and Cowboy. Then there's an alleged altercation between Dillinger and Griffin, and then they're asked to leave the bar. And for some reason that nobody can seem to explain, according to law enforcement, Sutton and Dillinger killed their friend in cold blood and then killed his sister when she came looking for him. The story that was pushed by law enforcement and consequently shared with the public through the media and network documentaries leaves so many questions that need to be answered. Such as, who are Cowboy and Chief? What was the bar fight about? Where were Cowboy and Chief that night 
and the night that Connie Branham was murdered. What kind of vehicle did Cowboy and Chief drive? What motive did Sutton and or Dillinger have to kill their friend, Tommy Griffin, or his sister, Connie Branham? And possibly even more importantly, why was there so much information that was withheld from the defense and from the public pertaining to other potential suspects? We'll talk more about what was left out later, but right now I want to tell you some of the things that I've discovered in the past year that I've been trying to prove Sutton's innocence. Listen closely, because I'm about to tell you what really happened, and it makes a lot more sense. This horrible tragedy begins with an attack on a man named Michael Vaughn. Vaughn's throat was cut. He was run over with a vehicle and left for dead. Although it didn't kill him, the incident, which is believed to have been drug-related, left him paralyzed. Vaughn had a cousin who he was extremely close with who set out to get revenge for what had happened to his cousin. While this man named Lester Johnson certainly had every reason to be upset about what had happened to his cousin, one could say that he was out for blood. And blood is exactly what he got when he cut a woman's throat, a woman named Tina Hartman. And he was demanding to know who was responsible for the attack on his cousin. Hartman told Johnson what he wanted to know. And allegedly, one of the names that she gave him was, you guessed it, Tommy Griffin. Hartman lived and Johnson was arrested for what he did to her. But that wasn't about to stop Johnson from carrying out his plan. He was ruthless. From a jail cell, Johnson issued hundreds of threats through his son who provided a declaration stating that his father had given him hundreds of sealed letters to deliver and had also given him instructions to follow up and issue other threats on potential witnesses and others. Johnson was determined to intimidate witnesses to be sure that he was not convicted for the crime he had committed. And guess what? It worked. As if this wasn't enough reason to consider Lester Johnson a suspect in the murders of Tommy Griffin and Connie Branham, what would you think if I told you that Connie and Tommy were subpoenaed to testify against Lester Johnson in his attack on Tina Hartman. Ooh, I bet that really made him mad. In a declaration provided by Johnson's then wife, Mary, she claimed that Johnson admitted to her that he had cut Hartman's throat. He went on to say that the only reason he let her live was because she told him what he wanted to know. 
According to Johnson's wife's declaration, which was provided to the defense and filed as an attachment for a motion for discovery in this case, Mary drove him to Sevier County and dropped him off before sunset. And guess what, folks? Supposedly, this is the same day that Tommy Griffin went missing. When I first started working this case, I ran a comprehensive report on Johnson, and I learned that he had been driving a Dodge truck. Thanks to an anonymous lead, I was able to locate and interview a law enforcement official who provided me with a declaration confirming that Johnson's Dodge truck was, in fact, white. Now, if you've seen the documentary or listened to my previous podcast in this case, then you already know the significance of the white Dodge truck. But in case you don't, Dillinger drove a white Dodge Ram, and one of the key witnesses testified that she had seen a white Dodge truck leaving the location where one of the victim's bodies would later be found. When I arrived at that witness's home, she expressed to me that she had lost sleep over the thought that her testimony had played a part in Sutton and Dillinger's fate to be on death row. She told me that the investigators showed her a white Dodge truck and that she told them she wasn't sure if it was the same truck she saw, but that they used her testimony as if she said she was certain. When I learned that my suspect also drove a white truck, I went back to that witness's house again. This time, I brought a picture with me of the same make and model of this white truck that Johnson drove, and I showed it to her. Just as before, she said she couldn't be sure if it was a Dodge Ram as Dillinger drove, or a D-100 like the one Johnson drove. Now, let's talk about the altercation at Howie's Hideaway with two unknown men who went by the names Chief and Cowboy. Johnson, who was obviously in town hunting down Griffin and another man who was allegedly involved in his cousin's attack, was the member of a motorcycle gang made up of Native Americans. In the documentary, Agent Davenport from the TBI says that he located these men and cleared them because they did not leave the bar when Dillinger and Sutton did and because they didn't have serious criminal records. I have so many questions about that. I have identified these men and we're going to leave that there for now. But I will go on to say that when Agent Davenport talked about interviewing these men and talked about these alternate suspects in the documentary, that brought it to our attention that there was exculpatory evidence that was not provided to the defense. This in and of itself is a Brady violation. Moving on. On the night that Griffin went missing. He was arrested for public intoxication after an officer responded to a call on the side of the highway. A shirtless and clearly fearful Griffin refused to tell the officer what had happened to him that night. 
according to the police report. The two men whom the officer described as, quote, older gentlemen driving a dark truck, end quote, were never identified or interviewed. But I pose this one very valid question, which is, isn't it a logical conclusion that if Griffin was acting, quote, fearful, end quote, that the person or persons that he was fearful of were somewhere around, were close in vicinity, hence the two, quote, older gentlemen, end quote, that were with him at the time he got arrested. Again, they were never identified. I guess this is information that law enforcement didn't seem to think was important. Okay, so at this point, you're probably wondering, if Tommy Griffin was arrested for public intoxication on the night that he went missing, then how did he go missing? He would have been in jail, right? Well, yes and no. He was in the drunk tank for a while, and then James Dillinger and Gary Sutton bailed him out. Now tell me, folks, if you're planning to murder somebody, are you going to go bail them out of jail right before you do it? Uh, I mean, I've heard of dumb criminals, but that's another level. Well, they didn't do it, folks. They did not kill their friend. In fact, they have told the same story from the very beginning and law enforcement just has not listened. Tommy Griffin left that jail that night with a dark-headed woman driving a Ford Falcon. This is also mentioned in the documentary. And law enforcement claimed that they found a woman that matched that description and drove a Ford Falcon, but that she didn't know anything about Tommy Griffin or James Dillinger or Gary Sutton. She didn't know any of them, and she hadn't been to Howie's hideaway. And Okay, well... Maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was that woman and, the, and she was lying and they just didn't investigate it more. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that Tommy Griffin did not leave that jail that night with James Dillinger and Gary Sutton. Folks, the pieces of the puzzle have come together and they're showing us a very clear picture of what happened that night, who did it, and why. The woman in the Ford Falcon was likely somebody who was luring Tommy Griffin for Lester Johnson, who was in town looking for him. It seems to me that there were other people that were looking for Tommy that night, for Johnson. And why is that hard to believe considering that Johnson was a member of a motorcycle gang and a man that they call Chief just happens to be at Howie's hideaway that night and gets into a confrontation with not Tommy Griffin, but Gary Sutton and James Dillinger. And then a heated conversation is heard between James Dillinger and Tommy Griffin. And supposedly 
the bartender hears the word snitch? Well, that makes sense. I believe that what I've uncovered through my investigation is that the men that were at Howie's hideaway who were associates of Johnson's, probably also members of the motorcycle gang, had confronted the group of men, not just Tommy Griffin, but also Gary Sutton and James Dillinger. And he had confronted them for hanging out with a snitch. Whether James Dillinger and Gary Sutton knew that Tommy and Connie were supposed to be testifying against this motorcycle gang member is beyond me. Maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. But if I was with a friend who was being threatened and was being called a snitch, I might inquire about that too. What are they talking about? What is going on? Is your life at risk? Are these people after you? Are they going to kill me too because they want to kill you? As I mentioned before, this is a much more plausible theory than the one that law enforcement, the prosecution, and the documentaries paint. They would have you to believe that a group of friends who were very good friends and hung out regularly went out for drinks one night that these two men who have been convicted of the crime paid for all of the victims' drinks and even bonded him out of jail but then killed him. Why? And then you have this other man who has a history of threats, who cut a woman's throat, who has motive and had opportunity. You tell me what makes sense. Last but not least, we have all of the problems that presented themselves at trial. A disgraced and disbarred medical examiner testifying for the prosecution, the district attorney Al Smeltzer telling the judge that Dillinger and Sutton's trials could not be separate because then they would have to let Sutton walk. They had nothing tying him to this. Sutton's defense team asked to be relieved because they didn't feel competent due to lack of experience with these type of cases, but the judge refused to find more competent attorneys to represent the defendants on a capital murder case. And on and on and on. So many problems. So many civil rights violations. Folks, this could happen to anyone. Our justice system is man-made and man-run. And because of this, it is subject to making mistakes as it did in this case, and as it often does. Gary Sutton is an innocent man. He's already lost 30 years of his life. If we don't do something to stop it, he will be executed by 2024. Let's not let that happen without a fight. I'm asking each and every single one of you to go to change.org and sign the petition to exonerate Gary Wayne Sutton. Do it today. There is no time to waste.
It is our duty to shine the light of truth, to bring justice to the restless souls whose lives were lost to their hands. Rise up against the evildoers of this world so that their souls may have peace.